Um, so if you were here last week, you'll know that we were wrapping up our series on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Pete's sermons were so brilliant, so, so brilliant. Um, really shone a light on, uh, I think, some quite timely questions for us as a church. And um, yeah, questions around our own hopes and dreams for what God's doing in our church, for what God's doing in our life. Um, and I think, you know, one of the overarching themes which kept coming through again and again, Sunday after Sunday, was this, this encouragement to, to keep in step with God, to, to keep in step with Him, not getting ahead of Him, not falling behind, but just to always be keeping in step with Him. And it was great uh, how these, I guess, pretty obscure books, really, in, in the Old Testament for lots of us, when we give them a proper hearing, when we really stay with them and listen to the voices in them, um, they become these storehouses of treasure for us. There's treasures of wisdom in there. So I really was, I think, blessed by that whole series. I hope, hope you were too. But anyway, uh, today we're forging ahead. Hey, look at that, with a new, <laughs> with a new series um, <coughs> called Being God's Image. Or uh, with a tagline, uh, what it means to flourish as God's creation. Now you might wonder about the grammar of that sentence, uh, flourishing as God's creation. It sounds a little awkward, maybe it feels a little awkward to say. It might feel a little less awkward if it said flourishing in God's creation. But flourishing as God's creation is what we're talking about. And a little word like that can actually pivot a huge, a huge difference in terms of meaning. Um, throughout the series, we're going to be making a pretty simple, pretty simple point, really, and yet highly significant. And that is that we are creatures who are living under God's care, that we are part of his good creation and that he is our wise creator. So we touched on this a few weeks ago during the season of creation Sunday, um, but it feels like this task of learning how to live as a creature, learning how to live as one of God's creatures according to his wisdom, according to his creative pattern for our life, is one that is constantly being contested, one that we constantly need to consider and reconsider. I think we're often too, you know, we're, we're often tempted to to think that we stand over and above creation, um, that we stand apart from creation, somehow separate from creation, as if it is a, a category difference to us. Um, and when we do so, I think we lose track of our, of our God-given identity. And when we lose track of our, our God-given identity, we, you know, we find ourselves either consciously or unconsciously um, stumbling and crashing over boundaries uh, that he's created for our flourishing. And if, if left unchecked, if we don't learn to live as creatures, if we, if we go on in this kind of way, um, it's no good. It's no good for us. It's no good for our lives. Um, we want to live well-formed lives. We want to live lives that reflect God's good design. But in order to do that, we need to know exactly what is God's good design. Uh, and so one of the best places that we can start with that is in the book of Genesis. And of course the best place to constantly realign ourselves is in the person of Jesus. But in the book of Genesis, we're going to start there this morning. And I'm just setting up the series. So this will be a little bit um, of a focus on this, this pattern of creation in the book of Genesis, particularly the first chapter of Genesis. 
And then from there, we're going to start fleshing it out about what does that mean for different parts of our life. But um, apologies if I'm sort of repeating myself here. Um, I did a, uh, share a little bit on this a few months ago, but um, this opening chapter of the book of Genesis, this epic opening chapter of the Old Testament, has become a bit of a, a battleground for a lot of Christians. Um, a battleground for Christians who are trying to reconcile two views, a high view of Scripture and uh, a scientific worldview, trying to understand how we can hold a high view of Scripture and a high respect for science. Um, the first chapter of Genesis has become, like I say, a bit of a battleground. And as a result, it's become almost a bit awkward to talk about Genesis 1. It's like, oh dear. Um, you can feel people tense up, like, what is he, you know, what's his theology? What's he going to try and smuggle in here? Um, you know, it becomes a little scary or something like that. Um, we think that, uh, yeah, we're going to hear one side or that side of this debate, um, this wedged kind of issue. But, but as I mentioned last time, I think um, the way these uh, debates over how creation happened often eclipse the probably the more significant question. So focus on the how often eclipses the focus on the why. Why did, why did creation happen? So another way of putting this is to say that um, the author of, of Genesis, who we can assume was Moses, um, was giving a particular answer to a particular question. And if we want to be good readers of Scripture, if we want to be virtuous readers of Scripture, handling the text well, um, respecting that it's written to an ancient audience by ancient authors, um, <clears throat> then we want to be thinking about what is the, what is the ancient question that the, that the author and that the reader has in mind, rather than the questions that we bring oftentimes to the text. So in other words, were the Israelites thinking about the how of creation? How did God make everything out of nothing? Or were they asking a different kind of question altogether? And the more we learn about um, the questions on the minds of ancient people, um, we learn this by, you know, by study, by looking at um, other creation stories and Egyptian and Babylonian and all these other ancient cultures, we start looking around at these different cultures to get a sense of what were the big questions that were out there at that time, because we find that those questions are often quite different to the questions that we had. So the more we look into it, um, the more we see that Genesis is not so much an account of how God created something out of nothing. And that is, you know, an important Christian doctrine, don't get me wrong. Um, it's just that that's not really where we find it in the book of, in the first chapter of Genesis. So um, it's not so much an account of how God did it, the material origins of the cosmos. It's more about uh, an account of God bringing functional order to, to matter, bringing order out, in, out of chaos, bringing um, life where there was disorder and, um, and a void. So against, um, yeah, against the, the formless and empty void that we get at the beginning of, of Genesis in verse 2, um, where darkness is over the deep, you know, where there's this picture of a, of a chaotic sea of nothingness, of, um, of waters churning in the darkness. God speaks order over this. He speaks order by these three uncontested acts of separation. So on day one, uh, God separates day from night. He separates light from darkness. 
And on day two, he separates the waters below from the waters above. And on day three, he separates the land from the waters, if you're familiar with the, with the story. And in doing so, he creates these three, these three distinct domains. So if you like, you've got day one, day two, day three going down there where he's doing these creative acts of separating. Light from dark, water from water, land from water. And then on days four to six, he creates residence for these domains, each of these domains. So um, although, you know, the heavenly bodies like the sun and the moon and the stars are not alive, we see that they're actually appointed, they're given a role, they're given a, a task, which is, you know, in the words of, the, of scripture, their task is to govern the day and night and to separate light from darkness, as well as to mark sacred times and days and years. So day four is clearly more than the origin story of where the moon came from, where the sun came from. It's, um, it's a story of their commissioning. It's a story of their um, being given a, a role to mark time, and specifically to mark the, the rhythm of, the, of Israelites' worship, their liturgical calendar, their seasons, their feasts, um, their sacred days, which was the basis of all of their culture. And this, this symmetry continues um, across, you know, days two and five and six. So on day two, you know, God separates water from water to create sky, which might sound kind of odd to us. Um, we might think, wait a minute, separating water from water to create sky. I don't know if that's how, I don't know if that's how the atmosphere works. Um, but ancient people imagined world, a world that looked a little bit like, um, like, like that. Um, they imagined a world that had water above and water below. So it was a kind of watery world with life existing as a bubble in between. And they imagined when they looked up at the sky, when they looked up at, in the day, they saw the, the dome of the earth and they thought, well, it's all this water up there. Whenever it rains, water's coming down. So they imagined that there was waters that would come up from the ground and waters that would come down from the ground. Um, so this is day, day two, the separating of water and water. And then on day five, uh, God populates the domains of water and sky. So day five, he gives the residents of the new domain, which he's created. He gives uh, birds and fishes and blesses them, blesses these creatures, the first living creatures, with the mandate to multiply and fill the waters and to fill the air. So then we get to day uh, three, day three and six, which appear together, which break slightly, you see, from the pattern of creation for the first days. Because now we've got this double creation event. On day three, God separates land from sea, forming this, like that mountain island that you saw in that last picture. Uh, and then he creates vegetation on this dry land. He, he fills it with, with seed-bearing plants, um, with food, despite there being nothing really to eat it. Nothing's been created yet. This created a domain and then he's filled it with food. But if you've been paying attention, as you've been reading, you go, ah, something is going to be the ruler over this. So you'll see all of this is in preparation for day six when God makes land creatures and then humans to populate this domain of dry land. And here's what it what he says, what the text says. Oh, there's some land creatures now. Um, 
God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Oh, sorry. Um, and the livestock. Let the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, <clears throat> so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So all of those three different domains. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God gives special status to these creatures, uh, these humans, uh, as his image. And according to Genesis 1.26, our human identity uh, as God's image entails having responsibility for, for playing a governing role in creation by bringing order and rhythm to the inhabitants of the land and the sky and the sea, just as the sun brings order to the, to the days. So this is the, this is the job description of what it means to be human, according to the book of Genesis, is to be people who bring order to all of the creatures in the sky and in the land and in the sea. But it's important to also remember that, that humans aren't the, um, they're not the climax of the, of the seven days of creation. The ultimate, uh, the ultimate end of creation is reached on day seven when God creates, in the, wor <coughs> in the words of Abraham Heschel, he creates a palace in time. He creates Sabbath. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but for most of my life, I guess I interpreted this Sabbath day as a, a kind of a day off for God. Um, he's been working hard. He's kind of pooped, you know. He's, uh, he's done six days of work. He needs a rest. Put his weary feet up and take a nap. Um, but, you know, I, again, I guess it turns out that um, I was often bringing my own modern assumptions in there. Um, so Sabbath rest, as it's presented in, in Genesis 1, is is not just a, that was nice, let's have a day off. It's actually the ultimate goal. It's the final goal. It's the pinnacle of the whole story is Sabbath rest. So it doesn't mean uh, living for the weekend. Um, it means living with God as our king. Um, so God's rest on the seventh day is similar to a king's rest after he's established his order, um, after he's done his work. The king takes up his rest on his throne. And when the king is at rest, it means that the king is at home. It means that he's not out campaigning. He's not fighting any battles. He's come back and he's resting in his temple. Um, so we see this in places in other parts of scripture, this idea of victory over chaos and rest being tied together. Um, we see this in places like First Kings 8, where Solomon acknowledges the way that God has given rest to his people Israel by establishing the kingdom um, among them, just as he promised. So it's God who gives them rest after he's done all the work of establishing the kingdom. Or Isaiah, when he speaks of God's rest in a, this amazing 
dense cluster of references to creation and temple and kingdom. It says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. So creation itself is a place of God's rest. It's where, his, where God takes up residence and rests with his realm and order. Um, and again, Psalm 132 puts it a bit like this. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So rest in the Israelites' mind is not just a um, relaxing day off, although that is a, those are good things. Um, don't get me wrong. I do like, I do like my weekends. Um, rest is a completion. It's, a, it's the end goal of, of all of creation. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's the, the, the ultimate purpose of everything is to heading towards rest. So when we read Genesis 1 in its ancient context like this, um, we begin to see that what we're reading is not so much a story of how all of the stuff came into being. We're reading about uh, this inauguration of this sacred temple called, that's God's temple, um, a temple inauguration text. And that in itself is a whole genre out there in the ancient world. Lots of different cultures have got temples in this time. They've all got their own texts about what their temples are for and why they're there. So this temple inauguration text is like a, I don't know, a meme. It's like a commonly understood thing which everybody gets. So the Babylonians had theirs, the Egyptians, etc., etc. But the key difference in all of those ancient stories is that um, humans are created oftentimes accidentally or maybe as an afterthought. Um, they are almost always designed as slaves, um, slaves born to grow food to feed the gods. So when you compare all the stories that are in circulation in, in this time in ancient Israel, everybody out there goes, it's a, it's a undisputed fact that humans are made to be slaves. We know that, that's true. Um, we know that we're here to serve the gods and to, to f- grow food for them. So that's where Genesis comes in as this polemic, as this argument against this. And it's interesting to think about where it's coming from, Moses liberating out of Egypt with all these slaves, and he's saying, this is your story. This is who you are. You are not born to work in the brickyards. You are, your identity is higher than that. Um, this remarkably elevated anthropology that is in uh, Israelite religion there. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God and to be placed in this temple? If this is all, if this is all what Genesis 1 is saying, what does it mean? to be made in his image and to be put into his temple. Um, so some people have sort of pondered what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Does it mean, is it like our rationality? Is it our ability to make tools or whatever? Um, is it our intellect that sets us apart from animals? Is that what it means to be made in the image of God? And there are obvious dangers to all of those views, um, particularly when it comes to like, vulnerable people, um, when we start creating categories of humans. A better way of understanding what it means to be made in the image of God is to, again, come back to the ancient context, come back to what was going on right back at the beginning of when this stuff was being spoken about. So um, the the word for image, which we get in the text, uh, the word for image in Hebrew is teselim. 
I might not be saying that right. But anyway, it's, uh, it's Tesalim, which means idol. Uh, it's, the, it's a little idol that gets placed into the temple once it's been completed, a little statue of, of the God. So when it says that God created humans in the image of God, it means that he created them as his idol to be placed in his temple. So the way things worked back then in the ancient world was that whenever a big, strong, powerful king swept through and, um, and over, overpowered a smaller group, um, they would set up these treaties and they would say, I'm not going to kill you, I'm going to look after you, um, I'm going to, you, you know, you pay me tax and I'll, I won't kill you, uh, it'll be a good deal for you, you give me money and, um, and I want to build a temple in your city and I want to put an idol in, your, in the temple which is an image of me and my God, just so you know who's in charge. So um, that was how it worked back then, they would have a temple and they would have a little symbol of the king or a symbol of the king's God in that temple. And they would also have an administrator who collected the tax and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that the idol, as it sits there in the temple, represents the rule and the reign of this god who's up, you know, far away doing his thing somewhere else. Whenever you see the idol, you go, okay, we don't want to forget who's really in charge around here. So as long as that idol is standing, the king himself was essentially there, present. So when we consider in Genesis then um, that we are the image of God, we are the Tesalim of God, we learn a little bit more about what it means to be an image bearer. I think first it, it suggests that our, our fundamental identity is to reflect back praise to God. He's created us to be creatures that always are sending praise back to him, like the idol is constantly sending back praise to the king. That's what we're doing. Praise and honor back to God. It also means that we operate in our life in a kind of representative role. So we express God's rule and reign. Wherever the idol is, it's like a sign that that king is actually in charge. Um, so as image bearers, as people who carry the image of God, we are a sign that God is king and that God reigns over his creation. Um, I think N.T. Wright summed it up really well these two dimensions of what it means to be an image bearer, better than, better than I can. He said, um, we're to be an angled mirror reflecting God's wise order back to the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to their creator. So an angled mirror that reflects uh, God's rule out to the world and reflects the praises of creation back to God. That is what it means to be an image in the Old Testament sense. Um, another clue, just as we're coming to a close um, this morning, about what it means to be the image of God, is to be, you know, it's expressed as in um, his image and in his likeness. So we've got image and likeness. And likeness just means um, essentially that we're made in his image and likeness, means that, our, um, that we're part of God's family, that, that we are descendants, in, in a sense, of God. So... At this point, we could maybe have come from a pretty low view of our humanity to maybe an overly high view of our humanity. There's always this danger of, um, of, of swinging from one to the other, I think, whenever we're thinking about these questions. Um, but Genesis 1 reminds us, whatever the case, that, that we are a special part of God's creation. We're not the center of the universe, though. We're not the, we're not the core of what God's doing in the world. He is. He's the center. 
Um, now, finally, um, just to, to kind of not so much wrap up, but to leave a few loose ends because we're going to be we're going to be um, we're going to be in this series for the next few weeks. So, like I said, I'm I'm setting us up a little bit with some questions and some thoughts this morning, and then following Sundays we're going to be teaching into these things in terms of implications. But I haven't talked about how sins affected our expression of the image of God. That's going to have to be addressed um, when it comes to our relationship to the created order. Like we know that things aren't all good. Um, things aren't working well all the time. So that's obviously important. And we haven't talked about the way that, that God has stepped into the disorder, that God has stepped into the chaos in Jesus, and that he has begun repairing, if you like, the broken image. So this is just some um, opening thoughts for us this morning. Now, um, hopefully that, that has got a few thoughts spinning in your mind. We're going to stop there. And, um, <laughs> and um, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to wait uh, on God. This is what we love to do at Urban. Um, we, love to, we love to welcome God's presence. So we've been singing songs this morning to Jesus. We've, been, we've received um, the elements of communion. We've pondered a few things. Um, we've witnessed the dedication of Florence. We've pondered a few thoughts about what it means to be image bearers. And just as I was, um, just as I was sort of pulling all this together, I, I just had a sense that um, maybe there's a, a desire that, a simple desire this morning and a simple invitation this morning. Maybe some of that stuff that I was talking about, um, this sort of picture of a really ordered world, of a really beautifully balanced and ordered world, feels like a long way away from where you are this morning, from where your heart is this morning. Maybe it feels like uh, uh, order is not a word that you would <laughs> immediately use when you think about your own life, when you think about your heart, when you think about your relationships. And I just sense that um, that this morning, yeah, this simple invitation to welcome Jesus and to welcome him in as the healer and as the one who brings realignment to the parts of our lives which have become misaligned. So, Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you, Jesus. Would you come?